I'm Tim Burrows. One of the biggest local media deals of the year was announced just before Christmas. The Bragg Media Group, led by Luke Gurgis, agreed to sell to the ASX-listed Vinyl Group for just over $8 million. That deal completed just a few days ago. Luke and his new boss, Vinyl Group CEO, Josh Simons, joined me to talk about how they got here and where they go next. I began by asking how the deal came about. I'll, I'll take the first part of this and then throw to Luke, but um, I think Luke approached me from memory um, not too long after Vampa came into the Jack, what then was called Jackster. So, and, and we did have a bit of a vision immediately of what we wanted to do with that transformation of, of Jackster once Vampa was in there and we started to understand, oh, we're sort of turning into a bit of a portfolio company um, acquisitions were going to be required to help bridge the profitability gap. Um, and then along comes Luke with uh, a company that we're all very familiar with and used to being, uh, well, dealing with, frankly, as uh, they wrote about us a lot. Um, everyone knows these iconic titles, etc. cetera. Um, and they were sort of the exact size ty- of, of acquisition that we were targeting at the time. Um, so when Luke came along, I think it was actually my first day on the job as CEO, like quite literally. Um, I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd told you this, but no, it was it was day it was day one that I got told Luke would like to have a chat, um, and that started what ultimately took six or seven months to kind of go from first email to to closing. But um, Luke, I mean, you tell your version of the story. I'd be fascinated to to hear how you view it. No, I think that's spot on. Um, I think the the one thing that I will say is that, as Josh knows, um, we we have had quite a bit of interest. Even first six months of the Bragg Media, we even had a potential offer come through to us, and deals have never got off the ground for a number of reasons. Um, largely because I just did it um, either either my business partner at the time, who's completely sold out now, has just was just not interested in selling and just killed the deal. Or I wasn't that excited about who was I was going to be potentially working with after the deal, and I think meeting Josh that first meeting, meeting the you know the biggest shareholders in the company, the the board, they're all just incredibly ambitious and inspiring and smart people, and they're the three qualities of people that I want to be around in my life. So, so that's why I got really excited about it, and I think that's how the deal came about from my perspective, um, and and why I'm excited about it. The other thing I'd say, oh, sorry, Tim, I was just going to say the other thing I, I would point out there is with any acquisition, um, you, you hope that it's one plus one equals three, obviously. Um, and that means, you know, the people have to be people that you think you can get along with. The The business itself needs to be, um, needs to have enough synergies that are obvious enough from the outset that can be pursued. And, and certainly Bragg Media ticked all those boxes for us. So that made it easier. And that's interesting, Luke, as well, the way you sort of talk about the sort of process where you you you, you came to deal making because it sort of it almost sounds to me like you were always open to conversations along the way. Whereas I, I think about you know as, as as I know that you know I I've previously been involved in having a business I was an owner of acquired, and we I guess we had a slightly different process where we hit a moment where it felt like time and we built a story and um you know a kind of uh you know an uh a kind of management presentation and we 
we row showed it and ran a process and we, you know, corralled indicative bids all at the same time and all of those things. But it, it sounds like you, you took a slightly more organic approach. Yeah, I think it might seem that way. But if you remember when we launched the Bragg Media, it was right when kind of Junkie just got sold and Conversant Media just got sold and Pedestrian had recently actually had quite a success after um, after the acquisition in comparison to the other two. But um, we were just kind of like, we popped up, we got a lot of traction very early and I think people that missed out on those deals just started talking to us. It sort of just came to us. It didn't really, it wasn't like I was... Um, actively chasing him six months into starting a company and then because you were in those conversations and you were having chats with those people they just kind of never stopped and it was always just always on it seemed to be from six months into the job um and yeah like i said i, I wasn't really inspired to take action on any kind of discussion until meeting josh and and, and the wider uh, vinyl group team so um that's how that kind of worked out and I was also curious, now you, you license a few of the titles, including Variety, Rolling Stone from PMC, Penske Media. Um, did you ever talk to them about them being an acquirer? Because I, I, I know certainly in the US they've bought a lot of titles. Not with any real momentum. There were some chats and there was some interest, but I, you know, unless they wanted to launch PMC Australia, I couldn't really see why it would be the best option. <laughs> And um, I didn't know, I don't know if I had that ambition or that headspace. I mean, you can see the deals they're doing. They're doing hundred, you know, hundred plus million dollar deals. Like they're, they're really fucking doing massive acquisitions. So um, it was just, it just didn't really seem like it would be the best uh, strategic move for them with the kind of deals that they were doing, they have been doing the last few years. Like they're an amazing company and they're doing some incredible things in publishing, like no other publisher is doing in the world. And so uh, I think, being partners with them rather than being acquired by them is going to be what I always thought was best for everyone based on the the race they were running and the race we were running. Well, look, and I, I won't labor too long on the kind of the deal and the negotiations because where the business goes is the, you know, the, the exciting part of the story, I guess. But just sort of a, I guess, sort of final question or area around this. Um, once you began to get into that conversation, how quickly, and Josh, you've alluded to this already, how quickly did you sort of manage to get to the point where you began to understand how the deal would look like and what, what were the kind of hurdles to getting the deal closed? Yeah, look, um, the gap between the initial sort of heads of agreement, so to speak, and and actually meeting Luke was was a few months. Um, I think we were just initially really wanted to feel each other out, like Luke said, work out are these people we actually want to be working with, because um, it was a you know it's a big decision for Luke and his old partner to to sell something that they built from from nothing, right? Um, once we cleared that hurdle of getting to know you, then things were quite easy. Um, then it was, you know, here's a heads of agreement. Then they come back with their edits. The, the, the process was about as normal as it, as it normally is and should be. Um, the closing was a little different. Um, it was uh, usually, in my experience at least, with your, your sort of long-form agreements and things like that, you sort of typically close around the same time that those get signed. Our, our process was just a little bit, I guess, unique. All deals have an element to them that are unique. Um but it didn't matter because we got to the end goal, which was close the thing and get on with uh, integrating the businesses. And that's obviously what uh, you said before. That that's what really the focus is at the moment and, and what we're most excited about. Well, look, you wrote recently about the late Michael Taylor and his advice to leave something on the table for the other side 
Uh, so I, I wonder how much you did leave on the table with the price. Yeah, I, you know what? That was ringing in my ears as we were doing this deal. Now, I will admit that those final negotiations actually happened. We're really led by my then business partner at the time, who was the majority shareholder, Sam. So I, and Josh will know, I kind of stepped back and just let Josh and Sam deal with that final stage of that deal. Um, but you know what? Maybe Josh feels like he put he paid more than he wanted, and we probably feel like we sold less than we we we, we got less than we should have, and that probably means it's really fair. <laughs> and that's that's the way I always see the deals. I echo echo that sentiment, um, and yeah, I, I agree with Luke in every respect there. Um, and look, yeah, the deal did get thorny at times, but all good deals should, and um, both sides ultimately compromised, and and that's how we were able to get it done. So. And Luke, have you made peace with the concept of having a boss again? Um, well, the last job I had, I got fired from pretty quickly. So I'm still, I haven't been fired yet. So I'm loving it. This, I'm having a lot of fun. And it's, and to be fair, I, I started this podcast maybe five years ago called Fear at the Top. And the reason for that, that starting that podcast was I was so stressed and I felt so isolated being a first-time CEO of a company, I'd never start run a company before. Um, I was making a lot of mistakes. I had huge imposter syndrome. I didn't know what the fuck to do. And I, I, I started getting some comfort learning that other people were in the same boat, but then I couldn't really work out how to connect with other CEOs doing it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast called Fear at the Top and I'm just going to interview other executives and just kind of share that experience with people. And at the time, like that's not a very unique format now. There's a lot of those kind of executive B2B podcasts out. But at the time, that was that was one of the first, especially in the entertainment industry. And I was able to get interviews with any CEO I wanted and it was extremely comforting to have that, that really lonely experience to share. And Tim, I'm sure you experienced that when you were sort of starting Umbrella and it got really thorny and now maybe you're going through the same thing when I'm made. Um, and now having Josh... Um, working with Josh and the wider board and the team, and it's not just all on me and it's not just on my neck. Like that is a really exciting feeling. Like I'm having in the last months, I've had more fun in the Brag Media than I've had since we started the Brag Media. Like it feels really exciting, and so yeah, I, I'm actually really enjoying that change, to be honest. Well, look, Josh, let's let's also sort of talk about your sort of experiences as as group CEO as well, which is now Vinyl Group. Uh, it was Jackster. Um, now you stepped up as group CEO. It's, it's still less than a year ago. And before we talk a bit more about how we integrate the brag media into that, I'd just maybe I wonder if you could just talk us through some of the main moves you've had to make with the group since you took that role to get to this point? Because it it feels like you've probably had to do an awful lot just to keep the train on the track, even before the brag appeared in the in the in the front view. Yeah, look that it was <laughs> there was nothing simple about coming into a, a public company that wasn't profitable and it still isn't, but we're getting closer and closer. Integrating my own private business from the US, keeping that momentum going while making sense of it with um Jackster and then getting used to the functions of being a public company CEO. I still don't think Luke actually understands what I do on the day, on a day-to-day basis because he'll sometimes call me and he goes, well, what are you actually doing? And it's like, I don't even know how to explain it. But most of the time it's talking to brokers, shareholders, um, you know, planning for the next report. Um, and it never ends. And the, the crazy thing to me is being a private company founder and CEO in America, that was like a 
15 hour a day job, right? This is too, but it's a completely different job. So I've had to upskill tremendously in a really short amount of time. Um, and uh, I haven't really had time to reflect on it, to be honest. So the, these questions are quite challenging in that respect because as founders, we just do what we have to fucking do. And um, in that, in this case, I had to learn how to understand the ASX rules really bloody quickly. And, and you learn by making mistakes. And you, you know, I can think of in the first couple of weeks, I got a deal through that I really wanted done. And I was so excited. I signed it immediately. Now in private land, that wouldn't matter. But as soon as I signed it in public land, my CFO called me and said, uh-oh, you've got a disclosure event. We need, need to go to the market now in the next couple of hours and put out a release. And so, fuck. So we did that. And it didn't have the uh, impact that I would have liked it to have had if we had planned it properly. And so the lesson from that was hold the pen. Hold the pen on your signal. Like, and, and so little things like that that would sound obvious when you say them and people listening might go, well, duh. But you actually have to make that mistake on a in a public way and in a spectacular way to um to learn that lesson permanently and um yeah i'm still to this day there's some things uh, you know I'll, I'll get wrong and there's some things that luke's going to get wrong too a part of a bit of pride and a sort of as his boss so to speak i look forward to watching him learn in the wild so to speak over the next couple of months because he, he will make some mistakes and that's okay it's what we do with the lessons that, that matters and so yeah go well, let's explain the the, the group then, uh, and the, because there are there, there are several quite sort of disparate elements that all in some way involved in the world of music. Um, so let's maybe start with the, the the piece of the business which you founded as you know privately before being acquired by what was then Jackster. So Vampa, maybe you can just explain the concept behind that. Yeah, I mean, I created the company um, at a time in my music career, which was I did quite well in Australia. I sort of did the Triple J thing. Um, did festivals, you know, lots of radio play, TV play, um, all that kind of stuff that you do in Australia. But I wanted to do it in a larger market. And I'm from England. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I went back to London and, and tried to get things going there and I couldn't. And it wasn't because the songs were shit or the ambition wasn't there. I just didn't know who to speak to. So in Australia, I know the best radio pluggers. I know the best publishers. I know, you know, all the people to put together the team um, that can ultimately exploit my artwork and make me money. That's how artists make money. But I couldn't do that in London because I didn't know who to speak to. And I didn't have the amount of, I didn't have the cash, like bank balance, sorry, to um, justify sitting around in an expensive city like London uh, for years on end while I built that team. So I thought, fuck, you know, technology's helped simplified distribution, publishing, even building a fan base, but it hasn't actually solved for the music industry connecting professionals. So LinkedIn, you know, is great if you're an accountant or an HR person, but if you're a songwriter or in the music, even just any creative field for that matter, it sucks. It just doesn't meet our criteria. It doesn't, it doesn't actually attract talent either. Oh, I shouldn't say that because plenty of talented people are on there, but it doesn't attract it doesn't attract the massive talent that's needed to have a good community that could be effective. So that's sort of why I built Vamper. I wanted to build a LinkedIn. LinkedIn meets Tinder for the music industry was like the first pitch deck that we ever wrote, right? Um, and, and I guess the, the barrier is one thing is solving the problem for your audience, but then monetizing it in a way that can be sustainable is, is a bigger challenge altogether, presumably. It, it took, yeah, it took three years. We actually ended up writing the whole app from scratch again, although – that was a good example of planning a, tr um, a transition very 
carefully and well executed and well in advance. But yeah, the first version of Vampa had no monetization at all. Um, and it was, it was 2015. I know that doesn't sound that long ago, but it, that was a time where people said, build it first um, and work it out later. And that just as the years ticked on, ticked on, ticked on, that was less and less sexy to investors. And so we, we hit a point where we go, the platform is good. The fundamental swipe mechanism obviously attracts lots of users and is is popular. But if we want to make this make money, it needs to be rewritten because it was kind of unscalable on a multiple on multiple levels, like unscalable from an infrastructure standpoint, unscalable from an app navigation standpoint. There wasn't any easy way to add new features. Um, so we just said, let's raise some money on the concept of rebuilding the entire thing. And we did that in a much shorter amount of time than we expected to. It took nine months and that launched in September 2020. And since then, the company's been growing. You know, the revenues are consistently growing. We've ultimately brought down costs quite significantly over the long term. Um, the reason I ended up selling that business into Jaxter was we had unfortunately made the mistake a lot of founders did in 2022, although we weren't to know, of raising at a stupendously high valuation, which made it almost impossible to raise another dollar after the fact because everyone just thought valuation is going to keep going up, up, up. And of course, there was the big correction. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I remember an episode of Silicon Valley about never have a down round. Correct. So then Jackster entered the equation. Um, Jackster, Jackster being, um, well, maybe it's a good point to explain what Jackster is. Yeah, Jackster is IMDb for music is the easiest way to say it. But the the, the unique selling point for Jackster is that it's official credits data, um, which means that all the information coming in isn't crowdsourced like it is on, say, Discogs or All Music or some other places. And so um, that, and that, that, that asset took many years and a lot of money to put together. Um, what they lacked, though, was anything you know, sticky or gamified or a social element, a social layer, I should say. And so that was a good case of one plus one equals three because we didn't have the official data um, and they didn't have any social layer. And so bringing the two together and coming in in a, to a public company, knowing that that would make in a in a in a market where getting new money in was tr- difficult. Um, it's a different raising money in a public vehicle. It's just a very different game, and and it's sort of not directly linked to the same um, yeah to the same capital raising world in private land. So it, it just made a lot of sense to us as a board of Vampa to bring bring those two together when we knew it was on an option, and and that all started by me approaching Song Trader which is a big investor in, J- in Jackson, now vinyl group, um, and asking them, well, I went to the CEO directly and I just said to Paul, Paul Wilshire, um, this is the situation I'm in, you know, what should we do? And he said, would you be, ever be interested in flipping it into this public vehicle? And I said, I hadn't ever thought of that in my wildest dreams, but let me sit on it. And about a week or two later, I thought this makes a lot of damn sense. And at what point did it start becoming a possibility that you'd actually end up running the group yourself? Um, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, and I haven't spoken on the record at all. But I think, to be honest with you, once the merger of Jackster and, and Vampa happened, we had to do a capital raising or a placement um, very quickly, like within weeks. And one of the things I said when I sold the business was I never want to be involved in capital raising ever again. It's, I'm sick of that. I've done it for 10 years. And the capital raise, to be honest with you, wasn't going very well. Um, so I reached out to Richard White, who came in and at the last moment. And I'd been building a relationship with him since 2017, I think. 
um, and he'd been tracking my business and Vamper, and it was easier for him to invest now in this, into this public vehicle. So he invested, and, and look, he, he didn't have any say in, in asking me to become CEO because he's just a shareholder. But I think there was probably at a board level an understanding of Josh helped bring in this cornerstone investment. Um, we do essentially have two CEOs in Josh and Beth, and Beth is incredibly capable in her own right. I want to make that clear. Um, but you know, do we really need the expense of two CEOs? Probably not. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was a board meeting. I was asked to come in and present my vision for the future, and and it happened very quickly. That's the first time I've ever spoken about that on record. Well, look, and I will bring um, Luke back in in a second. The, the there's one other kind of major part of the business to talk about as well, which is which is vinyl, um, which is I guess the most consumer facing component of the of the business yeah and look vinyl.com and brag in that respect is similar in our group flywheel so i'll just talk quickly about that flywheel because you know if if vampa was created for the creators and jackster existed for rights holders i think we were missing a kind of third part of that circle which was consumers Uh, everything else we sort of ticked we addressed and, and our tools are meant to power and empower all facets of the music industry but we weren't doing a very good job as a group with fans. And so that's where that's where vinyl.com kind of came from is what kind of consumer play can we logically make sense of with the stuff we already have. So that the stuff being the credits. Um Brag kind of fits into that category in a way too, in that it's obviously as a media company and with its publications, it, it, it's a connection between creators and fans. And so it kind of helps us, I think, complete that flywheel. That's at least how we visualize it. And I think our group company website kind of shows that too. Um, so vinyl.com, it was an idea um, and it was being worked on before I actually came in as CEO. But when I came in, I brought my developers in, my designers in, and we kind of started the whole thing from scratch and launched it in about f- four weeks. Um, and it's it's been a hit. You know, it's our fastest growing part of the business by a country mile. Um, what I'm really looking forward to now is what can we do with an e-commerce store and with the Bragg Media publications and what kind of you know synergies can we unlock there? And I'll let Luke speak to that a little bit because I know he's got – quite the vision for that which is very encouraging yeah luke do you want to come in on that point yeah i mean i don't i don't think it's without getting into the details and the exact strategy um it's a bit of a no-brainer we have a huge audience um of and a, and a large share of those are music fans and we produce a lot of music content and vinyl is a hugely growing market um it's you know I've got a big vinyl collection behind me, and it's 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 a big it's a big like they're just flying off the shelves all over the all over the country now, and it's growing quarter on quarter. And so, when we are talking about artists, um, why can't we also show them vinyl opportunities? You know, to to those fans that are reading those articles, why can't we create an experience and a community around vinyl collectors and music fans um, that read our content every single day? And how do we marry those two? And I think, you know, there's a whiteboard uh, full of those ideas on how we're going to execute on that. But I think the the high-level concept is pretty obvious to everyone, and I think that's what's really exciting about it. Question for both of you, and I guess this is one for marketers who are listening. Um, we've got a number of brands. We've always got Vinyl. We've got Jackster. We've got Vampa. We've got the various publications within Bragg Media. I remember one person saying to me, the best number of brands is one. Um, 
what's what are you thinking about your brand architecture is it going to always be house of brands or will everything eventually formulate under the vinyl brand I've got a I'm loving this interview you actually ask interesting questions it's not like most interviews they ask you these cookie cutter questions and you just sort of going through the motions but I love this this is the stuff I get excited about yeah, yeah, very it's kind. Amazing. So, uh, Abe, please edit so this anyway, bit out. Um, it's two. It's- <laughs> no, no, no. Please keep it in. But um, no, look, we spent quite a bit of money. Um, we engaged what I consider to be the best branding company in in the country, um, a company called Truly Deeply, to to evaluate and future proof our brand strategy. So this was actually before Bragg was. It was on the radar, but it wasn't you know even close to being done. And we wanted to eliminate one of our brands if we could, and we we kind of did. Um, I won't go into the details because it's that's less interesting. But um, ultimately, where we arrived at is we are a portfolio music company at this point. We need to be proud of that. We need a brand that's strong enough to carry that. Um, will there be convergence of existing brands? I've kind of gone on record with this already, so I can talk to this somewhat. But the answer is yes, there'll be some consolidation. Um, and it is conceivable over time that most of the brands do fall under some sort of vinyl you know, like the Virgin kind of brand, that that strategy, rather than a disperse or diverse rather house of brand strategy that it currently looks like. So I think there, there will be some consolidation over time, but by embracing this sort of um, portfolio mentality, uh, it, it does allow for us to add more to it, you know, before, after, and during this consolidation that I kind of I'm referring to. I know that's a bit vague, but it's about as much as I can say based on what we've gone on record in the past. And philosophically for the business, if I kind of look at the the most recently available revenue numbers, it looks like in revenue terms, Bragg is probably bringing in about eight times what Vinyl Group was previously bringing in, um, which is unusual for an inquirer versus acquiree. Does that mean that philosophically when we put the two things together, kind of vinyl has been dragged in the direction of becoming more of a media company than it was before? Um, if we do it right, I don't expect that to be the case. And I know, you know, media companies have obviously, look at Murdoch, tried to buy tech companies before and with middling results. I don't know that there's ever been sort of a tech company, which is effectively what we are buying a media company um, quite like this before. And so that's interesting in and of itself. And I think there's a bit of a responsibility to not fuck that up. Um, so that that will be interesting to see how that unfolds. As far as the, the multiple, yeah. I mean, but I think around the time that we closed the, the, the Bragg deal, because we've been growing revenues pretty fast. I think we were up to about 1.6 million implied run rate. Obviously, Bragg adds another eight to that. So it's just four to six times larger. And, and that... And, and also their team size is very similar to ours. So that's another challenge there too. But I, and I don't think so is, is the short answer to your, your question. I think we're trying, trying, at least from a group standpoint, present as a technology company. Um, and obviously Bragg has a lot of talent in, in the business itself and we will learn the media world from them or through them. Um, but Bragg, unlike, say, Vamper and Jaxter, which conceivably can come together, Bragg will be treated as a subsidiary, um, even if it's making more money currently than the rest of the group, because it should be. It is a media company in its own right, um, and we shouldn't try and fuck that up. We should very much try and maintain the integrity of um, of what it's built and, and what and what it is. And so, 
I don't think I'll be getting in there and creating too much chaos. I think Luke needs to be left to to grow the business, focus on hitting the goals that have been very clearly and publicly stated. Um, and I don't think you do that by me coming in and trying to impose all of my tech philosophies on every part of the business. I think some of there's probably some valuable stuff there, but it's its own it's its own thing that we now just own. Well, Luke. Um... When we last recorded something for the podcast, which was probably about 18 months ago, it was at the point at which you were just launching um, the local edition of Variety. Um, and when you were sort of talking about the philosophy for the brag media, it was about being the centre of culture. Um, is that still what you see as the mission for the brag media? Or do you think music is now back to being the bullseye? No, 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 very much the center of culture. We, I mean, music is a big part of culture. So naturally, if you're like, hey, we're going to be the center of culture, the lion's share of that is going to be music. It's the number one interest group for um, Australians and second followed by sport and film. You know, So so it's naturally just going to, rep- our, our content on being the center of culture is going to naturally represent the, the percentage of the Australians are into those categories. Um, and so... It is the center of culture and it is about inspiring, don't dividing. I mean, I always, we implemented the inspire, don't divide editorial philosophy a few years ago. So it's a somewhat a little bit of controversy, which I was surprised about. I didn't realize it would be a controversial thing to say that we're going to create content that inspires communities and bring them together. We're not out to like, you know, uh, get people angry in the comments section. Cancel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always joke that I feel like every newsroom around the country starts their day off by going, okay, what's happened today and how can we be offended about it? Um, that's not us. <laughs> and so we are very much about inspiring, non- divide, not dividing and being at the center of culture, whether that is through our content, our events, you know, working with talent, working with brands, all of that. And that, that's, that's, our, that's our North Star. Um, and then, Luke, looking at your sort of, um, I guess, motivators going forward, um, you know, for sticking with the business, et cetera, now, um, Hey, with the deal, you 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 mainly took cash up front rather than stock. Um, why did you choose to do that? Well, I guess like we, oh, like I said, we. I had an exiting partner, and that exiting partner. After I initially um, got that relationship off off the ground with vinyl, and I was excited about it. My business partner, well, he's one of my best friends, Sam. He took control. He was the majority shareholder of Brag Media. And he then worked through that that deal with Josh. And and it, the only way the deal was going to get done is if Sam was happy with the deal. And so ultimately, that's why I let him sort of take control from there. Um, but I think I think I want to point out that I have a lot of stock incentive with with vinyl. Um, you know, I'm I'm very very motivated for not only the rag media to succeed, but the whole group to succeed. Um, and that's what I'm really committed to. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because um, I, if if I understand rightly, so long as you stay for two years, you get five million options, which in theory I think we'd be worth about a third of a million dollars now if I've worked it out right. Um, yeah, thereabouts, sure. Is there a big incentive for you to stay beyond the two-year mark though, Luke? Look, I mean, I don't even know what I'm having for dinner tomorrow. All I know is that I've started this business having more fun and I'm more inspired than I've ever been working on this business. And I, we have big ambitions and I, I just want to build something incredible. And that's, that's what I'm really inspired to do with Vinyl Group. So 
Yeah, I mean, those kind of details, they sort themselves out. Where TUs comes up, it'll sort itself out. Uh, if we're all inspired and working and building incredible things together, those, those, those details can be trivial. There'll be, there'll be new incentives at that point. And it was important for us to incentivize him as part of the process. And when... You know, when the preference was to take more of the cash up front, and and there's look, there's reasons for that that we don't need to go into, but there was related party debts and stuff that needed to be cleared for this business to really thrive, and and so they just had to be addressed. Um, there was no clever accounting that, in the world that could address things like that. So we made peace with that, and and but it was important simultaneous to to the board and to myself that Luke was motivated and incentivized and that's where the, those initial stock options come into play. And I and I will say like if you do the maths on those stock options yeah it doesn't seem that much but my my uh view on it is the stock price is going to be dramatically higher over the next 24 months than what it is now. Um and that's what I'm excited about. And and if you start doing the the napkin maths if we if we execute well there is a lot of value that's going to come to this company. And so it's our job just to execute well and then the the reward will take care of itself. And look, you've you've committed to leave to delivering a profit number of at least two million for this, I think I've got this right, calendar year. So during twenty twenty four. Now the previous financial year, so that's not the same as calendar year, so I appreciate there's a six-month gap, but that was, I think, 0.3 or so profit. So what what is changing in the space of 18 months to get you from 300,000 or so profit to 2 million profit? I think if you had insight into our expenses last year, you would work out why the EBIT was so low. So there was a lot of setup for growth this year. And we're already, you know, out of the blocks in a very strong way and on track. So, you know, we had a similar experience in, I think it was 2020, where our EBIT number got, a, even though our revenue went up, our EBIT number got a lot worse from the previous year because we made certain strategic investment decisions. Last year was another one of those years for us where we decided to really build for the future as opposed to like extract as much profit as we could. And so, you know, Vinyl Group are going to benefit from that because we did all the we had all the like we made all those investment decisions last year, and they were, you know, hard decisions to make, and that really hurt our EBIT. But um, the fruit is going to come this year and next year, and that, that's what we're set up for. And Josh, I guess no guessing about it is this is clearly kind of a transformative deal for the group, just in in comparative scale. Um, if you hadn't done the deal. Where would the group be at now? Would it would it still be a going concern or would you be in another direction? What would be going on? It's kind of song traders in to a, a, an extent at this point that they can't, and I don't want to put words in, in Paul's mouth, but they can't really allow us to fail. Um, so what that ultimately means, at the same time, so I don't rely on that, but I, when you know that you make different kinds of decisions, you probably make decisions with a very much more longer term view than a distressed CEO who's just trying to keep the company as a going concern to your point. Um, so we're looking at a number of acquisitions and we've been very public about that. And and Bragg was one of, just one of them. And, and some of the other ones will be equally transformative if we pull them off. So to be honest, I, I don't know that we'd be in much of a different position. You know, it, it was great that we got it away before Christmas and um, I think shareholders felt like it was the Christmas present that they deserved after a few years of the stock price kind of being stuck at a certain level. Um, 
So that's great. But frankly, I'm pursuing the same strategy irrespective, which is we've got the organic growth, which all the businesses were doing, and we've reported that. Um, I want Luke focused on his organic growth at this point, um, and I'm let me go out and, and look for some other things to make sense of of the the company that we're building. Yeah, that makes some um, that, that 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 makes sense to me. And then just thinking back to we were talking a bit earlier about the experiences running an ASX company, and we've obviously talked a bit about the fact that although publicly listed, you've you, you've got a handful of quite large proportionally shareholders. Does it? always makes sense for vinyl to be a listed company or would actually going private in some ways be a more sensible option just to avoid those distractions of being on the ASX? It's a good question. And and obviously I came into this company when it was already public. So I wasn't involved in the decision to make it public. Like I said, 20 odd minutes ago, there are benefits to being public. It it does change the fundraising dynamic quite substantially. Um, I would hate to be in the private market raising capital right now, I'll tell you what. Um, But it's a buyer's market at the moment. And we do have, to to your point, some very large shareholders with very deep pockets. Um, So I think it makes sense at this point in time for us to be public. Um, In the future, could it be considered if it made sense, you know, delisting it voluntarily? It would probably be part of a transaction if anything like that was going to happen. So what I mean by that is if we were going to be bought in theory. Um, I could see in theory that that could happen, but I don't honestly spend too much time actually putting my energies into that because that, that's not really why I was brought in. That's not what I was brought in to do. I was brought in to grow the business Um if an offer one day comes comes along that's uh, you know suitable to shareholders and they all agree that it's time to go private again or get bought out altogether, that'll be great. But I can't really speculate there. It's, there's not a lot to work with. <laughs> well, Josh and Luke, a final question, which I ask everybody on this podcast. Um, what do your critics say about you? And what do your supporters say about you? Luke, you can go first here, mate. I think the, the answer is the same for both for me. Is it's like he's fucking dreaming, really. So, so we came out out of the gates, and I don't ever hide my goals. And I know the Australian thing is to always stay humble and just be like, "What?" Well, I don't see any con about hiding your goals. And I think the main benefit is it holds myself accountable, to be honest. So, I we came out and said we want to be the biggest music media publisher in the country, and. All that quote was put in quotation marks in in the press and Mumbrella, I think, found it a bit funny and that was certainly done in the tone of the article. But fuck it, like we did it and that was what we're criticised for, for having big ambitious goals and we ended up succeeding. Um, and I'm not going to pretend every big ambitious goal that we set, we I succeed at, but I don't fucking sleep. I just try to make, make sure we get it every single time. Um, when I'm wrong, I'm often not wrong, I'm late. Um, but that's what my critics will say. They'll say that I'm a fucking dreamer or I'm crazy. Um, and I think my supporters say the same thing and it's just with two different tones. I was going to take a similar approach to the answer actually and say, um, Marmite, just one word answer for both Marmite. You know, there's a lot of people who, um, probably admire what I do, but can't stand me. And there's, um, a lot of people who probably don't really care about what I do, but really love me. Um, and everything in between. But I've always been, even in, back in school, I was a Marmite character. You, you either loved me or hated me. And there really aren't a lot of people who are indifferent. Josh and Luke, thank you so much for your time. 
My thanks to Abe's Audio for today's edit. If you enjoy Unmade's podcasts, one small way of saying thanks is to give us a five-star rating on your favourite podcatcher. It helps us get into other people's feeds. We'll be back with more soon. I'm Tim Burrows. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.